Today's episode is sponsored by that pause button. Feel free to click it as many times as you need to. Go back to time points that resonated with you or need to be repeated. There are no limits on you clicking back. Share with your friends. Share with your fellow bookworms. Share with the hesitant bookworms who don't mind somebody extracting all the goods from the book to save them time. We're your people. We got you covered over here. Welcome to another episode of the Books and Black Coffee podcast. Very excited to share Invisible Women with you today. There's a lot to get through, so get comfortable and open that mind. So everybody, this is layers and a lot of data. Just looking at the different themes within this book, um, it is a call to action for everybody that listens today to think about the world and how they've navigated it and how they functioned and how they've lived in it. And just think of some ways in which you have become accustomed to the limitations and living outside of those, recognizing them, moving forward, allowing yourself to learn today, but not feel so bad that you didn't know some of these things. And that's what we're here for. So there are consequences for the gender data gaps They're like silences. They're within our systems, our policies, our frameworks. And conversations in places of power and in communities are not always reflective, inclusive, or informed on the importance of women, their needs, their struggles, and their voices. So we're left with the excuse of not having enough time to resolve these problems, but the reality is that time is saved rather than wasted when we deal with these things. We deal with lost resources and broken systems that claim that the problem isn't the problem until all parts are changed. So instead, the time that they say is is lost in trying to deal with these gaps and these issues that are affecting women is actually time that's saved. So we deal with lost resources and broken systems that claim the problem isn't the problem until all parts are changed. We're either dealing with a broken core that has a whole new body, or we're dealing with shattered holes, which have a new paint job. Some people listening today might be like, ooh, I wonder what they're going to say about invisible women. Are we going to talk about men and their failures? No, not at all. We're going to look at the gender data gap. Today's episode and this conversation are not to say that men should be punished for all of the ills and... Uh, limitations that women have had to face but it's all of us coming together as community and readers and people who are hungry to improve day by day in the fields that we work in in our relationships and how we do business and how we um, function uh, whether that's from uniforms to how we plan things in our cities to how we plan things in healthcare and how we cater to and accommodate others it is considering lived experiences which address issues in healthcare and policies and systems and research and pathways and remembering the people behind the numbers and the p-values, remembering the people behind the test tubes and the cells and the genetic cell lines and the design of uniforms and systems and things in gaming and things in health technology. And it's just remembering that there are people behind these numbers and 
not just having the numbers and not just having the data, but doing something with it. So a, a common problem is we collect the data. We don't separate it based on gender or sex. And we just collect data that has findings, but we don't know how proportional the effects are on men versus women. So that's something that we gotta address today. So when we have this, we end up with big data, which in turn is panned by big truths, by big algorithms with big computers. But when the, when the big data is corrupted by big silences, the truth you get are half-truths at best. So one of the first areas where we have a problem is language, which is based on male defaults. And it's not just language in terms of people, places and objects or things but it's also titles. It's also the languages spoken across the globe and the default masculine. Um, there's a common problem that plagues um, the way that these some of these languages are translated, not just when they're spoken natively, where um, you may have a language, for example, like Turkish, which was brought up in the book, where the term says he, she is a doctor, or he, she is a professor, or he, she's a nurse. But when that language is translated um, by systems which are at the core coded in a way that is biased towards women, the translation does not become she, he is a doctor, she, he is a nurse, she, she, he is a professor. It becomes he's a professor, he's a doctor, he is a nurse. And this is problematic when we think about how far it impacts the representation. So um, for somebody who reads um, reports or literature, it's the assumption that certain jobs and positions are associated with men and women when men and women can both hold these positions. And one example of this, I think, is found in languages like Spanish where there's a default masculine in some of the terms and in order to make it feminine you have to and edit the ending of the word in order for it to take on a feminine um, meaning or definition. You're absolutely right Dean it's something I didn't pay attention to that I've never paid attention to like a lot of stuff that this book brings up um, but yeah you're absolutely right in Spanish there are certain words that have a different ending or you have to use a different pronoun uh, which makes the word either masculine or feminine. If you type in the doctor, for example, it usually comes up with, in a few of the search engines, it comes up with both. But the default on Google Translate or whatever would come up like the doctor, meaning he, the doctor, el doctor. It's interesting that you say that because, again, this is based on data and it's algorithms and it's coding that feeds into these search engines with the default being men. And this also translates to when you're trying to find like images of uh, people in certain professions and the default is images of men. There may be women scattered in there, but sometimes it's like a 70% male representation to like 30 or less than 30 representation of women. Um, and I think this also goes further with um, English is not a grammatically gendered language, so there's you, but it's usually the generic masculine which restricts the modern usage of words. So um, I guess in the old English, it used to be poets and poetesses, 
doctors and doctoresses. Um, so it seems to think that it's gender neutral, but when you look at it deeper and you look at the history of some words and some language, you start to realize that there has been this divide between um, the masculine and the feminine, and sometimes the feminine has not even been considered. Um, but I also want to go further with words like um, dudes, guys, um, lads, um, homie. And the default when you're talking to that is men. Sometimes we use dude, for example, and we'd be talking to men and women, but that's not correct. And I think, T, you told me about something that you caught yourself doing after you had read Invisible Women. And what it was, after reading the book, I was hyper aware of, of what I say and the reasons that I say, especially when it comes to just words that I use by default. Mm-hmm. And I think anyone that knows me knows I use the word guys almost unanimously, like always. I've always used it, whether I'm speaking to a group of only men, um, a group of mixed men and women. But interestingly, and I only realise this as I'm saying it, I don't know if I would have used that word if I was speaking to a group of entirely female people which is interesting to think about but yeah like when I, whenever I sign, send emails at work or write messages on like teams at work to a group of people my old default you always used to be hey guys and it's interesting because guys in general when I think about the word out of that context I think it's like a group of guys like it doesn't make sense to call a group of females, hey guys, to, to the point where I'm really aware of it. And even when other people use it, I'm super aware of it. Like in my case, it was just because I never really thought about it or the consequences of using that word just because it's the default. It's, it creates a bias. And yeah, so now I just refer to everyone as everybody or just address everyone in the group. Thinking about the words that you use in a wider context and outside of just general speaking and what you've always done. Language seems so simple that it's hard for anybody to understand why it's important to consider how you use your language, where you use it, and in the context. And exclusions are made intentionally, but unconsciously. And an example of this is in recruitment um, for jobs, recruitment for positions, recruitment for studies even, um, and just in any spaces where you're trying to get diverse perspectives or experiences, language can be pretty limiting. An example of this is, I'll read you this little extract. A recent Austrian study of the language used in leadership job ads found a 27 to one ratio of masculine to gender fear forms using both the male and female term. The European parliament believes it has found a solution to this problem. And since 2008, has recommended that MF be added on the end of job ads in gender-inflected languages. The idea is that this makes the generic masculine more fair by reminding us that women exist. It's a nice idea, but it wasn't backed up by data. When researchers did test this impact, they found that it made no difference to the exclusionary impact of using the generic masculine on its own, illustrating the importance of collecting data and then creating policy. Even though... We try to create solutions, or should we say men try to create solutions for um, problems that they find, or they try to be gender neutral or fair in their intentions. 
very often they are out of no photo of their own. They think of things in terms of what works for men and not understanding what type of language can. What are the keywords that a woman reads and says, actually the same for me, or this won't work in my favor, or um, no, they're probably going to pick men anyway. So it's just something we got to think about in our language, whether that's the communications that we send out as people with businesses and that have newsletters attached, whether that's trying to recruit for research studies, whether that's trying to recruit for um, a creative project. It's just think about their language and doing a few tests of what appeals to women, what appeals to men, what appeals to the diverse cultures or experiences of voices that you want to reach and you want to include in your work. Along the lines of what you're saying, V, I also wonder how, you know, some of the stereotypes that we assign to people, well, not to people, into genders in general. I can't help but feel that also plays a massive part in, you know, when people post like job ads, post recruitment letters. There's a lot of words that are like um, lead or convince or be assertive and things like that, which in our society, we always treat women who are all these things super differently to how men who are described like this are treated. Do you know what I mean? And I wonder if when people put these descriptive words in adverts, some women look at it and they're like, well, I obviously can't act like that at work, otherwise I'll be seen or perceived as X, Y, Z. What do you think about that, view? Absolutely, T. Uh, that's a very valid point. It's spoken about in the book, which is something that made me think of the times that I've been in the position or I've watched a woman be annihilated, literally, for being all those things, assertive. Um, when our equivalent in men uh, show these characters and traits, it is praised. It is seen as getting the job done. It is seen as a form of leadership, a form of understanding what the role is in delivering. But a woman does it, and all of a sudden she's lost all credibility as a woman. She doesn't respect people. She's bossy. She thinks that everybody should dance to the tone of her footsteps or her stilettos. And um, it's no longer about a woman who is also con contributing to the business, just like her male counterparts. But now it's a woman who thinks that she is the business and nobody else matters. Did you know? Unicode has not historically specified the gender for most emoji characters. The emoji that most platforms originally represented as a man running was not called man running, it was just called runner. Similarly, the original em emoji for police officer was described by Unicode as police officer, not policeman. In 2016, Unicode decided to do something about this. Abandoning their previously neutral gender stance, they decided to explicitly gender all emojis that depicted people. So instead of running, which had been universally represented as a male runner, Unicode issued code for explicitly male runner and explicitly female runner. Male and female options now exist for all professions and athletes. It's a small victory, but a significant one. It sounds ridiculous when I say it, but the joy that I get from being able to put like a a dark skinned fist or a dark skinned thumbs up, mm -hmm. I don't know why I don't know why it gives me so much joy. But that's an example of small representation that yeah. I don't know. It's just the little things that make you feel a part of it, whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? 
The result of a deeply male-dominated culture is that the male experience and the male perspective is seen as universal, while the female experience is um, niche or other. And this stretches out into literature. I'm sure if you've been deep in any form of literature conversations, you know that back in the day, women used to get heat for talking in literature and using their own voices and their own perspective. And this, this isn't just an attack on women from those times. It was, unknowingly, it was a form of shutting down diversified voices because once you start with women, it's not hard for you to, to silence the voice of a child the perspective of a child, the experiences of people who are culturally diverse from the default um, that which is seen, it is easier for you to silence the things that can teach you a few things about the human experience, which was something we mentioned in Walden with just sitting with different types of great minds in order to expand your perspective and outlook on the world and just exposure to different perspectives and this bias stretches into the responsibility that we put on female writers to appeal to the taste of the majority to be acknowledged so it's women having to write stories that appeal to men and literature and articles that appeal to men but they are not the only experience on this planet and very often is you won't see a lot of men that read the work of female writers. But I can tell you there's a whole lot of women who be reading men's writing and men's books. And it's just a need for us to translate this um, interest in each other's work and perspectives and not disregarding because that's not your lived experience. And the fact that it's not your lived experience should be a reason for you to explore. But a lot of my literature and book reading in general was lacking that. I think it's called neurodiversity, right? People refer to it as that. Of course, all humans are different. So anyone writing a book, understanding who the writer is and how their lived experience could be different from mine. And this is why we need the diversity, because all kinds of writers bring out different sides of your creativity and they have different lived experiences that you might be able to resonate. Even if you're not a woman or even if you're not black, it doesn't matter. All of our lived experiences are unique and the more different types of people write and you have access to that, um, I think it gives us a better chance of connecting with each other uh, through literature, through books, and through reading. Just going further with those um, opinions in literature is that very often female writers will have their opinions disregarded when the words aren't easier to digest, when they're different and when they encourage critical evaluation. Men uh, provoke, should we say, a critical evaluation with their writing. So it's hard to understand why women can't do the same if we're all do, um, if we're all writers. And the diversity of voices is representation at the end of the day. And representation is so important because it adds other layers to the to the story and history. And we've been told so much about his story if we break down that that word and so it's so important that we bring the present and the future needs of her story to correct these omissions that have been overlooked or made in the past to ensure that the generations that are coming of tomorrow have voices that are that give them the permission to live and to challenge and to 
provide foundations on which those generations can build and challenge and break limitation and take things further where previous generation has stopped in their knowledge. The next generation has a baton that they can take forward and functioning just in a world that reduces these um, these cages and these boxes within which we operate or we're told not to operate at all. So in 1839, the composer Clara Schumann wrote in her diary, I once thought that I possessed creative talent, but I've given up this idea. A woman must not desire to compose. Not one has been able to do it, and why should I expect to? Again, women before her had been able to do it, and they were included some of the most successful, prolific, and influential composers of the 17th and 18th century. It's just that they didn't have broad name recognition because a woman barely has to die before she's forgotten or before we co-sign her work in the gender data gap by attributing it to a man. And if you see right here is representation is so important because if Clara knew about the representation of successful, prolific, and influential composers of the 17th and 18th century who were women who had come before her, she would have something to aspire to and know. Actually, they may not have been recognized, but they did some dope stuff. And I can, I can do it too. Because they did it, I can. Um, and it's important that we highlight this to encourage the next generation of girls and other women to make a statement through their presence so that young men learn to adapt to a new norm into new voices and women need to be recognized from the past and highlighted because this expands the possibilities of the future and it dismantles old molds and systems and boxes and biases. I've lived that. I've I've had it where growing up, like I barely saw any other black guys in positions that I could ever see myself in. Um, but it's only when I grew up and I started reading more and listening to different types of music. And it's interesting, so many rappers always allude to this, but it's interesting growing up because most of the other black males that I looked up to as a kid were either sports people or musicians. And that's why it's also so important for representation for women, because there are little girls everywhere across the world who dream of doing certain things or achieving certain things. And because they never see anyone else that look like them or are similar to them, the idea doesn't even cross your mind. You're like, oh, I probably won't even bother attempting that because obviously I can't do it. If someone, no one coming before me has ever done it, why would I be the first person to do it? So it gives you that inside empowering and that confidence to be like, actually, yeah, you know what, regardless of my background, lived experience, gender, I can achieve whatever I want to. So there's this section I found where it says award-winning British engineer, physicist, and inventor Hertha Ayutrin remarked that while eras overall are notoriously hard to kill, an era that ascribes to a man what was actually the work of a woman has more lives than a cat. Tiama needs some help with this one. It took a couple of times of reading to get it, but I think what the writer is basically saying is the amount of times that work that women in the past have done or contributed to, either mistakenly or on purpose, been ascribed to a man, has happened so many times, it's ridiculous to count. It just keeps on happening. Uh, and it's true, it's written all over history. I can only imagine 
how many women were forced to write books under aliases and they had to just keep that alias. At no point could they ever let people know that she was a woman because then her work would be whatever, less respected, not sold, not even published. And that's just writing books. Think about all the other industries, music, art, uh, science. My goodness, science, can you imagine? Really struck a chord with me when I read that as well, because it's true. And it's only when we look back in history and read and learn do we start to figure out how big this issue is. The history of humanity, the history of art, literature and music the history of evolution itself, have all been presented to us as objective facts. They have all been distorted by a failure to account for half of humanity, not least by the very words we use to convey our half-truths. This failure has led to gaps in the data, a corruption in what we think we know about ourselves. It has fueled the myth of male universality, and that is a fact. So the problem with this is when we see male voice and perspective and decisions as the default for everybody, it cuts out so many different perspectives and so many different experiences that when we look back and we analyze history, it's not, it's not as it appears. There are layers beneath the stories that have made it to the surface that make up the men that are even recognized, that make up the societies that have their little gaps of parts that they don't let the world see. They don't let other parts of society see which form the thread of communities within that society. There's a part in the book where I think a professor is speaking of or thinking about uh, students and he says, they were so primed to focus on diversity that they have shockingly little to say about such perennial questions as class, war, the economy, and the common good. And we touched on it in Walden as well. But for me, it's understanding how that feeds into or the worldwide or the human level of scope. Because all of these things, like class, war, econ economy, the issues that we're seeing today are all interconnected. I don't think we can speak about equality for one group only. I think equality is a way of society and is an absolute mindset. So we must absolutely focus on the different sides of equality and diversity. But we must also remember that we are all part of a whole. If one wins and the others don't, that doesn't mean equality. Another thing that we have to consider with data gaps affect things is in policies. Um, one example of this is in snow clearing in places like Sweden. And they are very often put, they're very often decided on through a gendered lens. Like it's mostly men in positions of power making these decisions. And unknown to them, they, they make things like snow clearing biased and favorable to men. Because women tend to take like public transit and walk in their unpaid duties like childcare taking kids to school, taking care of parents who are unwell or aged. And an example of this is, at a time in line with most administrations, snow clearing, snow clearing in Karskoga began with the major traffic arteries and ended with pedestrian walkways and bicycle paths. But this was affecting men and women differently because men and women travel differently. 
The consequences of these are found when we turn over to the fact that the way that they cleared the snow led to an increased amount of injuries because women fell in snow that had not been cleared. And they couldn't wait for the time for it to be cleared because they had places to be, kids to take to school, and unpaid labor to complete and do. Women do 75% of the world's unpaid care work, and this affects the way that they travel. So the unpaid labor is the same in some aspects across the globe, but there are also extra strings attached to some of those um, and extra duties attached. So a very common aspect of women's unpaid labor is taking care of their households, taking care of their kids, taking care of um, parents or neighbors. Uh, And then additionally, if you go to some other countries where they grow their food, they have the unpaid labor of having to um, bring those crops and, and weed things and ensure that their houses are fed and that places are clean and kids who are sick are taken care of on days when they're not at school and taking care of um, family members. And some of these women have to handle all of these responsibilities and this work alongside the actual jobs that they have. Um, how does that impact women? It impacts the way that they travel. So very often a man will only think about, I leave the house, I pick up my coffee, maybe that's his detour that he's got, then he goes to work. While he's at work, maybe he has a little detour at lunch, he goes to get his lunch someplace. If his wife isn't the one that made that, another aspect of unpaid labor, and he goes back to the office, he comes back home, maybe he plays with his kids for a little while, and then he goes to sleep. A woman's unpaid labor day looks like this. I wake up, I take care of my husband, I take care of my kids, I make sure everybody's fed, has their breakfast, people got clothes on, my kids don't have two different shoes on their feet. Uh, Then once they drop the kids off at school, maybe they gotta go see uh, a parent who's unwell or somebody who's suffering from dementia, for example, who requires um, daily care and check-ins. Once they've finished all of that, they get to a job, they have to think about their work, they focus on that. Once they finish from work, they got to pick up the cool, uh, the kids from school or from somebody who's babysitting. They got to take their kids back home. They got to prepare a meal for these kids and a husband in the case where that is uh, their position or their situation. And then it's thinking about uh, preparing for the next day. It's a constant cycle of having to consider all these different responsibilities and people's lives to attach to theirs. And thinking about these unpaid labors is there's something about, um, I think they looked at a study where women had cardiac events and they took longer to heal from the conditions or the procedures because they had to handle responsibilities as long side recovery. Whereas men would usually have somebody taking care, taking care of them. That would be somebody else's unpaid labor, most likely a wife or a daughter or a sister or somebody um, who's in the family. So we go further from this is sometimes this affects the career decisions that women make because that job that pays well, they may have the qualifications and the education and the experience to do it, but they have kids maybe that they got to take care of. They have a parent that they care about that they have to work into that schedule. And 
most often, the higher that you rise, you can't share your job with somebody. So you can't split the role with someone. That's one barrier to um, progression. Sometimes you have um, bosses who don't understand why you might need certain days off or later starts to the day because the business has needs, the ward has needs, the hospital has needs, and somebody of a position of power is needed in order to show up at a certain time of the day to set certain intentions and processes um, for these systems to run efficiently. So some women have to consider the unpaid labor that they have with progression. And very often when these women become mothers, they have to go into part-time work because that's what fits around their schedules. That's what works best for them. And childcare facilities haven't come to the same level of development uh, as these women's schedules and the needs that their careers may have. So you may have care provisions available from eight till six. Well, being a woman may need to be at work by seven and leave by seven or eight. Whatever her profession may be, she may have to work extra hours, but she cannot work extra hours if she has a limited amount of time for her kids to be taken care of or she has to see a parent by a certain time to check in about medication. So unpaid labor is something that we overlook so much because men don't have to consider. And even when men do take part in this unpaid labor, it's of a much smaller proportion to women. So that is a challenge. It absolutely is a massive issue in our societies, V. And I, when it comes to unpaid labor, I have two different sets of experiences in my life that, it, that have just weighed on me of, on how much of an issue it is. So coming from the culture I do, it's the expectation that everything to do with the house cooking for guests when they come, parties, organising, cleaning up, uh, looking after grandparents, looking after kids. It's always the mother's responsibility. And there's, it's absolute in my culture. It's started to change now with younger generations, but traditionally speaking. And I, to this day, don't understand how my mum did what she did for all of those years whilst also raising four kids. And also hustling, because my mum my mom is... A worker too like she has absolutely killed it um i don't know how she's done it and that position is not unique to a zimbabwean culture it it pervades british culture all cultures around the world there's something inherent in the way that we program or raise our children to have an expectation that women do all of these things and i think out of maybe just ignorance or negligence when I was younger, although I obviously knew about this, but it's only when I started thinking about it. And books like this open your mind to it. But it's not a sm- like it's not a small thing because you think. I think a typical man might be like, "I am married to my wife. What's the issue if she always takes the kids to school? Or what's the issue if she always does the washing up?" But it's not just those things. Like there's other societal things that also women are expected to do. And even if you want to think about it. As a small thing, think about every day losing two hours just like this by traveling to the bus to go to the nursing home to visit your grandma or whatever, or take the kids to school. Losing two hours every single day automatically puts you at a disadvantage, even if you want to start your own business or spend time to yourself. 
it automatically puts you at a disadvantage. And the little times adds up. Once you put that into months and years, like the effect on women, and not only women, on the economy too. I think it talks about it in the book, how much we tend to think increasing facilities to help this unpaid labour will be super costly. But when you look at it in terms of how much of the workforce is dilapidated or is not able to get to work or has jobs that are accessible to their ways of life, like we're losing so much money, even economically speaking. So I don't think there's an argument to say that it's because it's too expensive. I think it's probably something a bit deeper than that. Here's a sweet little fact for you. Unpaid labor contributes $10 trillion to annual global GDP. Trips made for paid work are still valued more than trips made for unpaid care work, which is problematic. So when you look at cities that provide that that complain that it's more complicated to cater to a woman's travel needs and making that more easy for her to afford, um, you realize how much this unpaid work contributes to the economy and then you realize that maybe it wouldn't hurt to provide transport that is equally as accessible and easier to navigate for women too who have these different responsibilities. So an example of how you can help women who have these um, different priorities and responsibilities is the example of the housing complex in Austria, which was called a Women Work City One. And what it literally did was within one building, they had a place that the kids could play. And it wasn't too far from where they did their laundry, so they could easily look at their kids while they were getting laundry done. Within the same building, the design of the apartments was set in a way that a mother, the kitchen was at the home, uh, was at the center of the apartment, through which a mother could easily see um, how her kids were doing, or if a baby was sleeping, or her kids were in the front room while she prepared dinner. Um, and it was, it just, it's just about building systems and environments where women can navigate not just the unpaid work, but in just lives that are safer and simpler for them to navigate the world just like men. Within the same apartment building, I believe that the way that they did the parking made women feel safe. Because any woman who knows that um, parking lots and parking lots in uh, shopping malls are scary places to navigate when it gets dark because it's just you and anybody could be around any kind of corner just ready to get you at your most vulnerable moment. So it's it's the little things like that which are purposely built solutions, purposely built systems and services that allow women to do their paid and unpaid work and where they have to spend periods of time um, taking care of their kids while they're away from a job. They, these apartments are set up and built in a way that they can fulfill all these unpaid, unpaid care roles and responsibilities and work and still be able to function optimally. Here's another way that policies affect women. You might not think about it, but I know every single woman can relate to this. And I'm sure there's a whole lot of men who are like, I always wonder what y'all be doing in there. Bathrooms. Let's talk about bathrooms, right? I'm sure that everybody's question is, what's she going to say about bathrooms? Let me tell you how bathrooms have been built and set up to have us waiting in queues when we really, really, really just need to, to relieve ourselves. 
Okay, so on the face of it, it may seem fair and equitable to accord male and female public toilets the same amount of floor space. And historically, this is the way it has been done. 50-50 division of floor space has been fin formalized in plumbing codes. However, if a male toilet has both cubicles and urinals, the number of people who can relieve themselves at one time is far higher per square foot of floor space in a male bathroom than in a female bathroom. Suddenly, equal floor space isn't so equal. Even if male and female toilets had an equal number of stalls, the issue wouldn't be resolved because women take up to two to three times as long as men do to use the toilet. When women make up the majority of the elderly and disabled, two groups that will tend to need more time in the toilet, this increases the time that is spent. For me, after reading this book, it's again something that I became, or I have become really, really aware of. And it's, at, it's everywhere we go, music concerts, sports, uh, even at work. And I think for all the males listening or anyone who doesn't use a female bathroom, usually your your first reaction is to is to get frustrated and be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know why this is such a big issue. But also consider the other side of the story. Imagine if we had to wait 20 minutes every time we needed to use the, the toilet. Just take a moment sometimes and be aware of it. Um, Oftentimes, there's nothing you can do in that situation, but being aware of it and raising it as topics of discussion, you know, are ways that we can begin to change things. I I totally agree with that, T. And it's again the policies, the people behind them, the people behind design. Um, you know, it's, it seems silly a subject to be talking about bathrooms, but it it's just funny how something so uh, ordinary. It causes problems for women, and it, it, it can have health implications. So, you know, not just women who are old or disabled, but, you know, you got to think about pregnant women, too. Like, having a full-grown, like, having a human being growing inside of you reduces your bladder capacity. So you are more likely to go to the bathroom more than men. But it's funny how women are eight times more likely to suffer from urinary tract infections than men, which, again, increases the frequency with which a toilet visit is needed. And added to that is an, uh, the differences in our anatomy, like just how it's just set up and what our bodies are able to um, tolerate and hold and how frequently we have to avoid, you know, like get rid of that. Um, it's really interesting when we take this to the third world. I don't like to use that word, but you know, um, where something as simple as a bathroom is not even provided at all. Um, so women are forced to poop and pee in holes where men could be around the corner or they won't have access to that much privacy. And that adds to the problem of not just health problems, but safety issues. Safety issues go further with things as bad as rape. And again, there's another data gap in who takes account or who collects the data on how much women need the bathroom and how spaces and floor space need to be designed differently. Who collects the data on the reduced availability of bathrooms in these different countries and, and communities and settings? Who collects the data on the safety issues? Who collects the data on the incidences of rapes and assaults that happen? But even when this data is collected, who is genuinely without bias and without motives of their own actually dissecting the data, translating it, 
deciphering what can be done. And if they don't have ideas, is to call the perspectives of those with the lived experiences to inform policies and to inform the building of systems and facilities that cater to women safely. I think again on safety was I remember seeing or uh, reading a section on the book where police officers in places like India, two women have to go to the bathroom at the same time because of safety. One watches over the door while the other pees or poops. And if they both need to go, they switch it. It's like it's like they doing a shift on, you know, ba- bathroom duty. And it's something that I think we should be doing better about. Um, we're in spaces and times where if we understand that we are a global community is the problem of one person doesn't remain their own problem. Because if you should have to survive in that society, it becomes a problem that you also face. And just again, on the data that's being collected, you know, it's, it's useless if governments don't use it. And that is in so many industries. If they don't collect the data and analyze it and use it for improving facilities, improving the way that um, women travel, improving the way that um, uniforms are built and systems work and the timing of buses and the availability of officers on streets or uh, CCTV or whatever contributes to the safety of women, the ability to travel efficiently, the ability to function in a society just as easily as men. Um, It becomes a data gap that we allow and we permit to just consistently go on and on. These gender data gaps occur when the data is not being collected, when it's being collected but it's not being disaggregated, and when it is collected, but nobody's analyzing it and doing anything with the analysis, then we just have solutions that will reveal themselves in the data, but nobody's looking at it. I feel like if we look at some of the data that we are able to find, the data will take us through a set of um, layers of questioning. And I, I think I've seen this method before. It's called the five whys. So take, for example, um, Women don't use a certain service after a time. Why? Is it safety? Why do we have a safety problem? And then you look further within that why to see we have a safety we have a safety problem because there's reduced lighting. Why do we have reduced lighting? Is the funding not available? Has nobody ever thought about having lighting at a certain time? Why hasn't anybody thought about this? Because they don't have a lived experience of these women, for example. Now we've got to the root of the problem is what can we do to ensure that we have the better lighting so women feel safer to travel at these times and they are not forced to operate under a limitation, which they shouldn't have to. Um, Another example is if we look at unpaid work, the stress and the depression that it causes, why do these women have these conditions related to having to do this unpaid work? Because work policies and um, systems don't operate. Why don't they do this? Maybe they haven't. Um, maybe they haven't collected the data. Why haven't they collected the data? Because they don't care about it, or they just haven't thought about it. Now you go through it layers and layers and layers of this data. So I feel like everything goes back to collect the data, learn to collect the data, analyze it, do something with it. 
the, the problem and the solution are within the data. You identify the problem, you go through your layers of analysis, and you can finally move closer to a solution. And if it's men that are doing this, once you've analyzed to the best of your ability, get those diverse voices. Get the voices of those with lived experience to help you inform how you're going to move forward. And it's like you say, it reminds me, or I just thought about one of my favorite quotes by Bruce Lee, where he says, knowing is not enough, we must apply. And it's so true, nothing changes until we take action. But in order to take action, exactly like you say, data is the most important thing, because otherwise we end up in the mess that we're in. We're not driven by data, we make choices that actually might end up harming whatever it is that we're trying to fix. Any experiment that you do, um, I think back to my times at school or at uni where, I don't know, I wanted to find out when something broke. So I'd measure a specific item that tells me when that thing broke. But if you don't enter the correct fields that you want to find out or use the correct equipment to measure what it is you're trying to find out, then the data that you're gathering is pointless and it will just point to stuff that doesn't that doesn't really affect, like you said, the your sphere of consciousness or your lived experience. So it's just, again, it shows the importance of representation because when we set up models or when we set up ways of measuring things, the, the field, the inputs and the outputs that we're looking for are also subjective because a human has to decide those. And what is that human's bias? Where are they coming from? T, you were absolutely right. And when I think about just, not just the data gaps, not just the lack of, collecting this data, not the lack of analyzing it and actually deciding what, you know, learning from what it shows us and, and what we have to learn and what doesn't work and what works and for whom and who is left out of the systems when certain things don't work in their favor or consider them in their design. And it just makes me think of, you know, we just thinking about data that's collected maybe through electronic means or paper or surveys or questionnaires. But what about this tech age that we're moving into where data and coding is within the systems that are supposed to serve us, that are supposed to move us forward? If that data is based on mentalities and systems and thinking that is stuck in the past and thinks that what has been done is the best that can be done, then AI is going to be screwed, my dude. It's going to be screwed and skewed. Um, and that's a concern because when it's not just ours, it's not just about Siri being able to talk to us efficiently or Alexa answering a question or turning up the volume or the temperature of a room, it's not just about technologies that make life easier, it's the ability for these technologies to recognize the difference in needs between men and women. Um, one example is voice recognition. There's, I think there was something about a model of car that had voice recognition technology, but it only recognized her husband's voice and not hers, but she owns the car. Problematic. Um, and what about if we look at it medically? Um, technologies that are supposed to maybe measure heart rate and um, breathing and sleep quality and metabolic rate. But if this data has been based on defaults of men who are a certain weight and height and fat to muscle composition, what data is being collected won't be accurate. Um, 
a big concern as we move into like the AI and the ASI um, era is the fact that we don't just have a gap with the knowledge of the coders who will be human beings who design the algorithm, but now the the biases of the people who create the algorithms and the codes affect society at large. And they will unknowingly discriminate and there'll be inefficiency. So what we really are churning out is junk um, because it, it caters to some and not others. And usually it caters to a minority forgetting the majority because outside of the default white male, there are men of different ethnicities and different uh, physiological differences. There are women of different ethnicities and fat body, muscle compositions, different weights, different concerns, whether that's health, that affects the way in which these systems and these algorithms will cater to them or recognize them or ignore them because if the coding hasn't accounted for the atypical, as we call it, or the other niche characteristics or the diverse characters or qualities, then ideally these people are missed and they're not catered to and they're not recognized by systems and algorithms. And I think I saw another example. If in recruitment certain things are picked as the things that you want in a candidate and those have been things that you will mostly find in male applications or things that men mostly include, then that means that automatically women are not given the opportunity to interact with a human for that decision to be made, but these codes will automatically just delete them out of the system or delete them from the pool of applicants that can apply for a position or even be interviewed. So in another part of the book, they speak about the crash test dummies that are used in the automotive industry. And up until, I think this year, I think I saw a post on it really recently that the first female crash test dummy was being used. Up until now, we've always used test dummies based on males. So whenever you check a car to see how it behaves in an accident or crash and how the airbags and seatbelts work, we've always used male test dummies. And that feeds into the digital space because we often have to correlate the results. So... You'll see how the body moves, you'll record it, measure how it moves, because it's, it's a certain average weight and height and size. And the same behavior is not true of how female average bodies would behave in that example. And that is a massive thing. If we think about all of the safety ratings that we have on cars, and the book goes into it, it's a, it's a really great chapter. But the safety ratings of cars... Um, even the seatbelts, when we design seatbelts, we don't account for women with breasts or women with pregnant bellies. And it must be really uncomfortable. As a man, I get it and the seatbelt is perfectly nestled in between my chest. But I can imagine if you have breasts or you have a bump on your stomach, it could be really uncomfortable. And when we think about cars also, T, is headrests. When headrests are at the wrong height or at the wrong angle, the wrong shape to accommodate your body this could impact women's safety and their ability to be protected, should we say, from whiplash in, in the case of an accident. In fact, the data state suggests that they have a higher incidence of whiplash um, after an automotive accident. But then another problem with this is there's a data gap in re which 
causes us to have headrests that have remained this way because there's no available research on headrests that account for the female body. It's almost non-existent and the assumption is that whatever works for male men and male test dummies would work for a female body when that could cause problems. And the researcher looked at the regulatory tests that are conducted worldwide and she found that there are several local differences, only a few, but they still use the 50 percentile male to represent the whole adult population. The funny thing about this is there are a lot of men who don't even fit into the 50th percentile male representation who are also affected and accounted by this, um, what do we say, lazy um, data collection and creation of testing. And that therefore leads to a whole lot of people who are left out of what the data thinks it has discovered and implemented. So it doesn't actually protect as many people as it claims to protect. It's not as representative of the whole adult population as it would think. And this isn't just about data. This isn't just about numbers. This isn't just about testing. This is about real life situations and where data that is not representative can cost lives and it can affect safety and it can affect the confidence with which people operate in spaces and interact with technology. And just on what you were talking about with women, oh yes, T, you, you correct. Pregnant mamas and driving safety and women just in general. This part that I'm about to read you, it just highlights the importance of including female driver measurements in passengers into the design of car safety features. Um, research from 2004 suggests that pregnant women should use the standard seatbelt, but 62% of third trimester pregnant women don't fit the standard seatbelt design. A three-point seatbelt can also ride up on women who carry low, which a 1996 study found can triple or quadruple forced trans transmission to the abdomen compared to when the belt is worn below the uterus, with a corresponding increased risk of fetal injury. This is problematic because women don't stop with the function of their daily lives and going grocery shopping and going to work and dropping off kids when they become pregnant. If they've been in the driver's seat before, they will probably drive close to the end of their pregnancy. So it's important that however these safety features are designed, it accounts not just for pregnant women who have bumps that, bumps that they have to accommodate, but also the increase in the breast size as their pregnancy progresses. And also just in general, just the normal woman who's not pregnant, it, we have features that men do not have. We have dimensions that men don't have. So often we'll, we'll wear our seatbelts the wrong way to accommodate comfort, which doesn't work the best if a collision or something was to happen or occur. Um, and it just starts with testing. It's not necessarily getting at um, industries for not... Um, considering this, but just, you know, we're in an age where we've seen enough pregnant women, we've seen enough studies, I believe, of the impact and the consequences of these safety features not being used correctly. So just moving forward, use the data and separate it and study it and see what solutions can be created. Even aside from the safety aspects of transport, like I think about it because it affects me, 
a lifetime of squats has blessed me with big glutes, but even like the bus designs, because women generally have wider hips than men. So usually the bus design, you know, you sit on a bus and the seats are super close together and the actual width of the seat is quite narrow. Like there's tons of women who feel really uncomfortable, especially when like public transport's super busy. I'm sure there's tons of women that feel super uncomfortable on trains and buses and aeroplanes just because obviously that seat's been designed to an average male who their hips will be narrower than the average female. But whether it is designing PPE or safety boots for construction workers or safety uh, uniforms for people who are engineers or whatever industry you may be in or in the police force with um, bulletproof vests, whatever the industry is, it is important that we consider safety. It needs to be taken seriously from the data collection to data integrity to data verification and processing methods because this data goes beyond being numbers. It, It translates into the way that policies are informed and systems operate and things are designed and things are coded, especially in this age we're in. If we don't start taking the integrity and the collection and the verification and processing of this data, it is going to feed into systems that intentionally block out and do not consider certain parts of the population. And then we then have blind spots in systems that are supposed to serve everybody, but only serves a few efficiently and correctly. It is important that we move forward with looking at the industries that we work in, looking at the industries that we operating or we engage in, and start thinking of ways to change things where we are. Use this book as a tool to assess what is not efficient, what is efficient, um, what data is available. Um, has it been processed to a stage and, and left? Can you do something to take the analysis further? Can you do something to work with somebody who might have the power to change these systems, to inform policies, to change the way that men and women are catered to? It's not about saying, this is how it works for women and this is how it works for men. If one of us is disadvantaged, all of us become disadvantaged. Because if a woman cannot serve you to the best of her capacity in whatever field she's in, it increases the workload on other people. And to be honest, we don't want to be burdens in a society that should account for us too. We don't want to be burdens in a society that just with the right data and application and processing can also include us into its defaults and into its coding, into its algorithms so that we're able to do our jobs safely We're able to do our jobs efficiently. We're able to do our jobs with confidence. We're able to serve and show up in the way that we are and just include us in planning and design. The world will be a better place. (laughs) And I want you to understand that whatever we've highlighted is not an attack on men. It's just a call to action. This whole book is a call to action at its core that even if you don't have these lived experiences, Engage with those who do. Listen to those who do. Work with those who do. 
to create better systems and workplaces that are more efficient. Um, and that goes for a lot of different industries. Let's just talk to everybody outside who, who knows lived experiences the same way that I believe medicine should move forward with understanding the female body. And it's we've gone past the age of the male default. We know there's too much science and research out there showing us that even down to the cellular level, we are so beautifully and intricately different from one woman to another, even from, let's not even talk about men and women. It's, there's differences within us as women. There's differences between us as men. We have different ways of dealing with metabolites in our bodies. We have different ways and reactions and sensitivities to drugs. We have different sensitivities to technologies and the coding and the algorithms in these systems have to account for that. And just, Inform yourself. An informed society will always, or should I say a, a society that is hungry on being informed and moving forward and progressing will understand the importance of including all perspectives that can contribute to a solution or to contribute to better policies and better interventions and better technology that can serve others and detect things accurately. Accuracy is so important. P-values are not a joke out here at every level. So yeah, I encourage everybody to get this book and just highlight and underline things relating to your industry and learn a little something. Um, you're not without power. And even if you don't hold the power, you, there got to be somebody close that does. And just one step at a time get closer to solutions and make an impact. This book for me is an absolute must for men to read too. Um, I can honestly say my life changed after reading this book, just how I see the world and what I'm aware of. This book highlights to me how biased and how unfair society is to women. And when I think about women in general, I think about those women close to me, my mum, my sister, UV or my friends and I think damn you guys have to put up with all this crap on top of the normal stresses of life and the very fact that it doesn't come into the male consciousness usually unless someone brings it there or unless you've stumbled across it I think that needs to change and this book is a great informative book and what I really like about it there's a lot of emotion in the book it's clear that the writer's passionate about what they're talking about but it's just data like you can't there's no subjectivity with what the writer is putting across. It's just data and it's fact. So if you have any connotations in your mind about what feminism is or what it means to be feminist, I would urge you to just put those on the bench for now and just read the book. Um, see how it makes you feel. And don't assign any stereotypes or past experiences to it. Just look at it as data. Data that will make our world a much safer and better place for everyone, not just a select few. Just to add on to it, I also think it's like we were talking about with the representation. I think it's an important, an important book for all women to read also, because when you are armed with information and data that's presented in this book, you are so much more empowered to act, to make decisions and to challenge the status quo. Um, because I also understand that talking about these issues from a subjective perspective sometimes people just put it down to subject experience 
And our society would love to shut down subjective experience and be like, yeah, your case might be different, but in general, or make generalizations about it. But being able to put figures and also understanding that, oh, damn, this actually isn't only me. This is to everyone that this is happening to. I think it's super empowering for groups. So read this book if you haven't. From one invisible bookworm to the world. Um, I hope this episode has encouraged you. It's informed you. It's empowered you in some kind of way with the information that you've got. And we don't have to say much more. You all are intelligent, intricate beings. And I know you can make impact wherever you're at, no matter how small you start out. Remember to share, rate, and review. We want to know what you've liked about the podcast so far. From our bookworm hot spring to yours. Until next time, happy reading. Whether that's a paper, book, missing data, or a text message, just keep reading.